0: Good morning, Four Oaks. I'm Pastor Paul. So glad that you were here. Um, Obviously, I have my books, which must mean this is a really big deal. It's a a two-water ball sermon this morning. So anyway, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. You know, believe it or not, we started this series in Romans back in the fall, and we've spent the last six or seven months in these first eight chapters, Romans 1 through 8. And Paul's principal subject, if you've been with us, you know this, Is just simply the gospel. Um, When we say the gospel, we mean the good news, the good news that Jesus Christ came, he died for us as sinners in our place, he took on our sin, he was raised to life for us, and that by being united with him in faith, we have all the blessings of Christ, forgiveness of sins, eternal life. That's what we mean by good news, and Paul just can't get enough of the good news, can he? He's talked about the the content of the good news, the the reason for the good news, the assurances of the good news, the application of the good news. He's really talked about the heart of the good news. But now we turn to Romans chapter nine, and Paul um, seemingly shifts the discussion away from the gospel to ethnic Israel. In other words, he wants to address... Um, this issue of the Jews and how is it that God's Old Testament covenant people have rejected their own Messiah? Now, it might appear that Paul has shifted from the gospel to this new section, um, but nothing could be further from the truth. Because Paul wants to talk about the why of the gospel. Why has the gospel not taken root? with the Jewish people as an entity. He wants to talk about God's future plans for them in the gospel, and the way he wants to talk about this is through the lens of God's sovereignty. Now, we have to ask, what, why sovereignty? Why, why this attribute of God has, has Paul chosen to sort of zero in on? Well, let me tell you why, why it hasn't, why he didn't decide to choose this, okay, or why you know, you get what I'm saying, right? The reasons he hasn't. Well, it's not like Paul forecasted to the 21st century and said, you know, all those Christians in the 21st century need, need lots of good arguments about why they should be a Calvinist, okay? Or, or they, they needed some debate fodder for their, for their free will Arminian neighbors as they sort of duke it out. That's, that's, that's not why Paul wrote this passage, all right? Not, it's not why he wrote... Romans 9 through 11. See, there's a context. There's a pressing question that the Christians in Rome would have been asking as they had gotten to this stage in reading this letter. Remember, this letter was probably uh, it was written, of course, by Paul, but it was read probably in one setting to the church body. And at the end of Romans 8, we looked at these last few weeks, Paul makes these amazing promises, right? He talks about how there is no condemnation in Christ and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, that that God's purposes will never be thwarted in the life of the believer. And you could imagine a question then arising on the part of the people who are listening to this passage, right? And the question would have been this, Paul, if God's promises and purposes have seemingly failed when it comes to the Jewish people, the Old Testament people of God, how can we be so sure that he will be faithful to us? In other words, Paul, how can we bank our lives on Romans chapter eight, in light of what appears to be this massive falling away and hardening of hearts of the Jewish people? In other words, Paul, can we trust the word of God? Is the word of God powerful to save? And the way Paul wants to answer this in this chapter and these, actually these three chapters in 9 through 11, all begins and ends with God's sovereignty. And we are going to be camping out particularly on Romans 9 for the next month. And and let me just try to give us some, some reasons why this is a good thing for us to do as the people of God. Because I believe Romans 9 is absolutely critical and foundational in understanding who God is and how God works. It's the Mount Everest of theological peaks in the Bible. Um, Romans 9 gives us one of the clearest pictures we have in all of Scripture into the very heart of God and the ways of God. It's almost as if Paul says, let me just give you a small glimpse. I'm going to open the door just for a second I'm going to close it then because it's going to be too much for you to take on. And I want to show you something about the heart and mind of God. And Romans 9 fundamentally deals with the issues of calling, of election, and God's sovereign purposes in salvation. Now, some of us, depending on some of you, depending on your background and sort with different churches or campus ministries or as a Christian, some of you are just like Pastor Paul. I would just rather not go there, right? I want to stick my fingers in my ears and go. Okay, uh, it, this is too controversial. Um, this is too difficult to parse out. This is too divisive. Um, to be honest, it's too much work. And and let's be honest, this, a lot of what Paul says here about God's sovereignty in Romans nine, it does run counter to the cultural air we breathe. Does it not? The cultural air of self determination and autonomy and freedom. And, and sort of being independent, autonomous beings. Now, for every culture, let me just say this, every culture in human history is going to have um, more or less difficult times with certain sections of God's word, depending upon what that culture's idols happen to be. You know, Mandy and David were talking about demolishing idols. Well, every, every culture, every era has them. For, for some, it was race. For others, it's gender and sexuality. Well, clearly, one of ours is going to be this idea of of the all-controlling, sovereign, governing God. And let me just say this. The Bible does not give us the option to ignore these things. Guys, election and sovereignty are not peripheral themes in the Bible. You can't read Ephesians 1. You can't read Romans 8 as we've been discussing. You, it's all over the place, and the question is, what is it as the people of God that we are to believe about these things? And let me just give you fair warning. Some of the answers, let's just say, might be emotionally unsatisfying to you, right? There, there might be sometimes you're like, I wish Paul would say more at that point. Some of you might say, I wish Paul would say less at that point. Right? Um, and this is a real challenge for us to, to really bring our preconceptions and ideas of who God is to his word. See, we're all going to be, we're going to worship some kind of God. See, we, we all carry around with us an internal sense of who God is or who we think he is and what, or who we think he should be. And the challenge for every culture, for every people in every age of the church is to bring those conceptions, those ideas, the the thoughts we have about who God is to his word, lest we worship a God of our own making. And worshiping a God of our own making, of our own ideas is simply another form of idolatry. And so one of my prayers for us this morning One is that we would just see the heart of Paul, and in seeing the heart of Paul, we can see the heart of God, and that we can walk away from Romans 9 in the coming weeks not with a a self-assured sense that that we now have our arguments straight, that that, that we know we have our philosophical categories in line, that we know how to debate and talk about these things, no, 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 that misses the whole point. What we're going to see, what I pray that we see, is the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus who came to save people who did not deserve to be saved. So, so two resources for us on this journey. So one is this book by John Piper. John Piper wrote this before he was John Piper. Do you know what I mean? Like, like I mean, he was always John Piper, but before he was John Piper. This is called The Justification of God, and it's an exposition of Romans chapter nine. And I, I don't say this lightly. I believe it is the greatest exposition of Romans nine in the English speaking language, okay? And you can um, browse a copy out in the lobby. You can scan the QR code, um, order it through, through Amazon. Just fair warning, it is heavy sledding, right? Um, you're, don't think you're gonna like kick back up on the couch with a margarita in this book, well, you might do that, okay? But you'll be soon fast asleep, okay? And that's not bad either. But just, but you get what I'm saying. Um, it's a it's a deep read. It's a heavy read, but I think it's a rewarding read. Number two, we're um, rebooting our pastoral devotionals for this last season of of the school year, and so we take ten or fifteen minutes every Monday morning. Um, I'm sorry, every weekday morning, eight to eight fifteen. Um, you can stream it through the church website or the, our Facebook page. And what we do is we take portions of the text from the previous week and we unpack them in more detail. And let me tell you, there is so much here. Um, We're going to be really neck deep in it this coming season. So those are two resources for you. But for this morning, we're in Romans 9, 1 through 5. So I'm going to invite you to stand if you can. And we're going to read God's word together. Paul's speaking and he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ." To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Father, would you help us now? Would you help us to be faithful and true to your word? Lord, would you go to work in our hearts that you would rearrange any misconceptions Wrong ideas about who you are and how you work. Lord, would you you do that for us by your grace? Lord, there is real hope in this chapter. Hope in Christ. Hope in you. Lord, bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. We take your seats. Three points, as usual, and here they are. We're going to first talk about the church's problem. You know you had a problem this morning, but you do. The church's problem. Secondly, um, are we in the right order here? The church's problem, okay, Paul's pain, and then thirdly, God's plan. There we go. The church's problem, Paul's pain, God's plan. Let's look at the church's problem first. Paul tells us in verses three through four what is on his heart. He is here now to talk about, let's look at the text, my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, the Israelites. In other words, he wants to talk to them, to the church in Rome, about God's chosen people, the people of the Old Testament, remembering, of course, that Paul himself is a Jew, that Jesus was a Jew, that all the apostles were Jews, that the earliest converts in the church were Jews. And the reason he wants to talk about the Jews is that they are sort of the elephant in the room at this stage of the church's life, or better better put, they're the elephant not in the room. You see, it is now 25 years since Pentecost. And remember, at Pentecost in Jerusalem, um, when 3,000 came to know Christ on the first day and thousands more were added in the subsequent days— these were Jewish Christians. Now understand something, I don't say converts, because in their minds, these Jewish Christians were not starting a new religion, they were not leaving Judaism. In their minds, they were worshiping um, the Jewish Messiah. They were worshiping and following and trusting in the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the Old Testament. And so that's why, for the first generation or so, the Jewish Christians continued to continue to go to the temple. They continued to go to the synagogue. They continued to, to want to gather as those faithful Jewish people who were now trusting in their Messiah. But something happened, something emerged over the next quarter of a century, where as the gospel began to spread across Europe and across Asia, and hordes of Gentiles right, began to come into the church. Most of the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, the diaspora, did not receive their own Messiah. And we see this evidence throughout the pages of the New Testament, particularly when Paul or other apostles would want to come into a new city with a gospel. They would go first to where? The synagogues. They would preach in the synagogues as, hey, brothers, we're here to tell you how the Old Testament is being fulfilled through God's chosen Messiah. And by and large, they were kicked out, excluded from the synagogues. This is why Christians began to gather in their own communities, right? Because the Jewish authorities, people um, would not have them there. And so by the time Paul is writing this letter, it is 8057, 57, 25 years after Pentecost, and a couple of things have happened, okay? Remember from the very beginning of this series, we talked about how Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome. And he expelled them, Jewish Christians, um, traditional Jews, expelled them all, and they were gone for about five or six years. And during that time, the church in Rome began to be populated with strictly Jewish Christians. Well, when the Jewish Christians finally were able to come back to Rome... They were like, they got to the church and were like, whose church is this, right? Somebody's sitting in my seat. Um, And Charles, it's great to see you sitting in your seat, my friend. And, and And they were just like confused, right? Like this, what's happened? Well, the Gentiles were confused too. It's like, there's so few Jewish Christians. Where are all the Jews? They are God's chosen people. We've been the recipient of those promises. Why have his own people Harden their hearts to him? And behind that question is a deeper question. And that's really where Romans gets at. And it's simply this, has the word of God failed? Paul, we see all these Old Testament passages written two and four, you're to and for your covenant people of God, but now they have sort of in... Some, not all without exclusion, okay, but certainly most, the majority, have hardened their hearts and have walked away from you. Has the word of God failed? And this is what Paul wants to address in this chapter. And what made this particularly perplexing for the Gentile Christians and for Paul was that the Jews had all the spiritual home court advantages that you could ever ask for. And Paul lists them out here, right? They had the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. Now, they say in football that the home court or home field advantage is worth about three points in betting circles. That's what I heard, okay? I just heard about that. I read it somewhere. And because it's universally acknowledged, it's harder to win on the road, is it not? Um, Typically, when you're on the road and the visiting team, you don't have as many fans. You don't have as much support, um, you have to travel. You're out of your element. You're sleeping in a strange bed. Oftentimes, the referees are on, or let's just face it, they're against you. Unless you're an FSU fan, they're always against you in any sport, no matter what happens, right? And the, way that the reason the home team usually wins is because it has all the advantages. But we know wins are not guaranteed, right? That's the situation with the Jews, They had all the home-filled advantages spiritually. Guys, they had a front row seat to the history of redemption, right? We we get to look back in the Old Testament and say, man, what amazing thing that must have been to see God part the Red Sea, for the angels to pass over the homes, to slay the Egyptians. We, we, We look back on those things and we glory in them. Can you imagine sitting down with your children saying, let me tell you what happened when you were little? Remember that time we went to the Disney World? Forget that. Remember that time we crossed the Red Sea? I mean, guys, we're talking about a front row seat to the history of redemption. Yet, they turned their back on God. Now, understand something. This problem is not just a New Testament problem. It was an Old Testament problem. That was always the pattern in the Old Testament where the bulk of the Jewish nation would turn Harden their hearts. Remember, they were carried into exile, the Babylonian exile. And then what God would do is he would raise and preserve a remnant, okay? Just an example here. This is from Ezra 9, after a small group of Jews had returned to the promised land from Babylon. And listen to what Ezra says here. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, Seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your covenant commandments again and intermarry with the people who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us? I missed that part. Would, would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? See, this was always the situation with the people of God. And there's something in the Old Testament, and there's something very important for us to learn from this, and it's simply this. Having the home court advantage spiritually is incredibly beneficial, but never decisive. It's incredibly beneficial, but never decisive. And this is both simultaneously, church, a sobering reality and a hope-filled reality. It's a sobering reality because for many of you, you have had the home-filled advantage all your life. You've been raised in a Christian home, you've brought your family to church, you've been in community group, you've gone on mission trips, your kids have done youth camp. But yet, despite all the advantages, maybe one of your children has walked away from the Lord. Maybe someone in your family, maybe a dear friend, who who seem like such a faithful believer has hardened their hearts, has fallen away. And so this is a reminder, it's a sobering reality, right? It doesn't matter um, if you're, students, if you're a covenant child in your family, you still have to grow to a point of receiving Christ on your own, owning your own relationship. Christianity is not caught by osmosis, right? You have to have a saving personal relationship faith in Christ Jesus, regardless of the advantages in your life. So, so, so one, it's very sobering. But two, it's incredibly hope-filled, right? Because think about the folks here who have come from backgrounds where you had no spiritual home court advantage, did you? Christ was not proclaimed in your home. You didn't even read the Bible till you got to college. You were, you were on a one-way trip this way, right? And Christ is this way. But God supernaturally, sovereignly intervened and turned your heart and your life around. And so this reality, guys, it's, 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 it's simultaneously sobering and it's hope-filled, right? Think about Paul a Paul who who had so hardened his heart to Christ that he was killing on behalf of God, but yet God sovereignly saved him on that road to Damascus. But but make no mistake, this was a massive theological problem that was facing the church. It's it's actually been been an issue that's faced the church for the last 2,000 years. Paul wants to address it, but before we go there, let me just ask you, where in your life are you tempted to say, Pastor Paul, if I'm really honest, I have to say, I have to ask, has the word of God failed? Has the word of God failed in my marriage? Has the word of God failed with my children, with my vocation, my job, my money, my life circumstance? This is, this is not where I expected to be. This is not what I expected to be wrestling with. And, and I know God is good. I know he's sovereign. But, but the pretense, the pretext in my life oftentimes is, has God's purposes in my life been thwarted? Have God's words fallen to the ground? And that's what Paul had to wrestle with, which brings us to this second point, Paul's pain. Now, look at verses 1 and 2. Paul here takes an oath, and as a Jew, to take an oath was a big deal, right? This was not a pinky promise. This was not, you know, my fingers are crossed behind my back and all that sort of stuff, right? This is like, he says, I'm taking an oath. I'm swearing upon myself. I'm swearing before God. And what he is swearing to is his unceasing anguish and great sorrow. It could literally be translated his unrelenting grief. Have you ever had unrelenting grief in your life? In other words, you were so full of grief and anguish that you just wake up in the middle of the night feeling that heavy pressure on your heart. Maybe you're walking through a season like that right now. That's Paul. And what we have to ask is, is, what do you do with that pain, right? We all do something with that pain, We all experience unceasing anguish. We all do something with that pain, whether it's to drown it in substance abuse or numb ourselves with media or travel or hobbies or be distracted, anything, right, to keep from experiencing that pain. But Paul is very much in touch with his pain in this passage. And as an indicator of how much Paul is hurting on the behalf of his brothers, the Jewish nation, listen to what he says. He says that, if he could, verse 3, he wished he could wish himself accursed. Now that word accursed, anathema, it means to be cut off, to be removed from the presence of God. Paul is saying the reason, if he could, he would wish himself cut off so that his brothers in the flesh, the Israelites, wouldn't have to be. Now, one thing just to say, just as a sidebar here, make no mistake, guys, the biblical writers, for them, hell is very real. Eternal separation from God is very real. It is not simply a metaphor to talk about life experiences in this world where we drift from God. Hell's a very real place. Who is it in the Bible that speaks most about eternal hell? It's Jesus. So this is not just a Paul thing, it's a Jesus thing. Paul says, this is very real and I would trade places with them if he could. Now before we just blow past that, I want you to think what Paul is saying. He's saying, I would be damned in their place if they could be saved. Now, Paul knows that that's not a possibility, Right, and thank goodness that's not a possibility, right? To put that sort of decision upon us as human beings. Paul's already told us nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. But I do think there's something to get in touch with here that will help us to understand the depths of despair and what we're to do with our own depths of despair. And here's the question: Who are the people that you love so much? that you care for so much that you would exchange your soul for theirs. I want you to think about that for a second. Because that's going to be a very short list, right? You might say, well, there's no one on that list for me, Pastor Paul. My my children, my, my spouse, my husband, my wife. Well, think about it this way. Paul feels that way towards a whole group of people. I mean, that is how... I mean, we typically think about Paul as sort of the intellectual, ivory league, theological ethic. Paul was anything but. Paul was a real dude because this was not a theoretical exercise for him. And I think it's very important that we don't blow past this idea of unceasing anguish because C.S. Lewis reminds us of something. Listen to this quote from him. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures... He speaks in our consciences, but guess what? He shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. See, as I said before, we're all going to do something with our pain. Paul uses his pain. God uses Paul's pain in his life to get him to seek God, to call out to God. See, if we stuff our pain, if we let it slide off our back, it won't play the role that God intends it for us for it to play in our lives. And we can, can we not? We can gauge how much our heart is moved by something by how much we what? Pray for it. See, there's some of you who have been praying every day for decades for that lost family member, that friend who walked away from that, from that spouse who you're unreconciled to, for, for neighbors, for friends. Guys, we, we can tell what really moves our hearts by what it is that we pray for. Listen to what Paul says at the end of Romans 9 as he sort of draws this discussion to a conclusion. What is the first thing Paul says? Romans 10:1 Brothers, my heart's desire and what? And prayer. To God for them is that they may be saved. You see, Paul's pain leads to Paul's prayer. It leads him to seeking out to God, to calling out to God. And and that's what God would have our pain do for us. Who are we calling out to? And, and, And don't try to play philosopher with this. Or import philosophical categories or human reasoning and simply say, well, you know, I, I don't see how prayer reconciles with God's sovereignty. That's, that's not for you to figure out, right? And as you've heard me say many times, the question is, if God is sovereign, it isn't, if God is sovereign, why pray? If God isn't sovereign, why would you be praying? The reason we pray is that we know God is sovereign. We know He moves. And if he is the one who is decisive, right, in salvation, in accomplishing his will, of course we will cry out to him. So before we leave this point, let's just again remind ourselves, don't strip Romans 9 from its pastoral context. See, that's what we love to do. We love to debate these things. We love to get in philosophical discussions. We we like to look, we like to post on the internet and look up different blogs and debate this person and that person. And, and Paul says, that, that's not why Romans 9 is here. Romans 9 is here to give you confidence in the word of God, to give you confidence in his purposes. So let his pain, let your pain be a, an incentive to seeking after God. Okay, last point, third point, God's plan. Look at verses four and five. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Now, I want to talk about the difference between reading the Old Testament moralistically versus Christocentrically, okay? Okay. Now, let me say this first of all. We do need to learn to read the Bible in the Old Testament, obviously for the moral lessons it contains, okay? So so in other words, when we read the the Old Testament, we are certainly looking to its characters and stories to teach us life lessons, right? To give us wisdom, to help us learn, to help us grow. So we can look at an example like Joseph, and exhort our children to be like Joseph, right? To be faithful, to persevere, to seek after God, to turn away from temptation. We can point to other examples in scripture like be like David, don't be like Saul. I mean, and that's a very appropriate thing for us to do. Paul reminds us of this, 1 Corinthians 10, 6-11. Now these things, he's talking about the Old Testament, took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not, we must, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now here's the key verse. Now these things happen to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So please don't hear me say we should not be looking to the Old Testament for moral lessons or instructions or leadership lessons or character sketches. Absolutely. But that's not the problem. See, the problem is when we look to the Old Testament merely or only moralistically. See, if we look at, if we look at the Old Testament a strictly moral lens of do this, don't do that, then a lot of us get to our Bible reading plans in Leviticus Leviticus and say, what am I to do with that, right? I mean, like, is this how to have better hygiene? Is this how to remove the mold from your kid's bathroom? And believe me, you need a book for that, right? So obviously, Leviticus must be saying something simply more than that. But see, what Paul is saying here is that we have to read the Old Testament and the whole Bible for that matter, Christocentrically. See, we have to to understand, church, that the Old Testament is not simply a series of stories and character sketches and um, random thoughts about wisdom that sort of all put together for you to teach your kids so they hopefully they'll turn out right in the end. That's not why the Old Testament is there. The Old Testament is there for one reason. It is pointing to and preparing for Jesus Christ. Everything is fulfilled in him. Everything points to him. Remember, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, and they can't understand what's happened with the Messiah and Jesus and the resurrected Christ and his death on a cross. And so where does Jesus go to tell them about him? He goes to the Old Testament. He goes to the law and the prophets. See, everything in the Old Testament is to be read in light of Christ of how this is pointing to the fulfillment of Christ. Peter says it this way. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. See, when we understand that a book like Leviticus, which I've been threatening to preach through for many years now, and it will come true one day, I promise. But when we, when, we, when we stop thinking about Leviticus from a simple moral framework, and we start reading it from a Christocentric standpoint, it all comes alive, then we realize, oh, see without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And so when the Israelites were bringing those sacrifices day after day after day, can you imagine how laborious that was? Can you imagine having to sacrifice your your best farm animals, right, at the altar? And what would they have been saying? Oh, if only we had a sacrifice once for all. And God says, I have just the thing in mind for you. I'm sending my son. See, as as they were seeing that blood shed, as they were seeing that sacrifice made, God would have been preparing their hearts, cultivating their hearts so that they were looking for and expecting a greater sacrifice, someone who was greater. And you can and you can apply that hermeneutic, by the way, to all parts of the Old Testament, whether it's the prophetic literature or the giving of the law. Or the, or the kings, the rise and fall of the kings, all of them ultimately are preparing for and pointing towards Christ. This is what Paul means when he says, he lists all these blessings in verses three through five, then he says, and last of all, or mostly of all, from their race according to the flesh is the Christ. Now, what would Paul want us to, to gather from this? Hear this, church, and this is what we're gonna see in Romans nine, is that all of these things were not just preparing the way for Christ, although they were, but all of them are now yours by virtue of your faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, these Levitical sacrifices that were pointing to Christ, they now belong to you. You now are the beneficiary of them through Christ. You know how God's law was, was, was pointing to Christ, exposing people's unrighteousness? Well, now that law has been fulfilled on your behalf. And I think Paul mentions the patriarchs here for a particular reason. So who were the patriarchs that he mentions in verse 5? Who were these fathers? Well, of course, they were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why does Paul mention them right here at the onset of his launching into this discourse on God's sovereignty. Guys, let's remember who Abraham was. If you were here when we preached through Genesis, you remember a little bit about Abraham. Guys, Abraham, God did not choose Abraham because Abraham was this exemplar of faith. What was Abraham doing when God found Abraham? He was worshiping the moon all of his children were named after foreign deities and gods. He was just a rank gentile pagan, right? And God said, "By my grace and by my good pleasure, I'm going to choose Abraham. Not because I could foresee all the righteous things Abraham would do. Guys, Abraham was a pretty messed up dude. He he lived in fear. He consistently tried to circumvent the purposes of God. Remember, he went in and slept with Hagar because he didn't trust that God would provide an heir, and he impregnated Hagar, and there was Ishmael. He abandoned his wife twice to the Egyptians. Abraham was a guy just like us. And I think the reason that Paul mentions the fathers here is that he wants us to be reminded of the work of sovereign grace that had to occur in our lives for him, for us to come to know him. Guys, we weren't just doing awesome, going our own way, minding our own business, and then one day we woke up and were like, today's the day I'm gonna turn my life around. Because that's not how grace works. That's not how it worked with Abraham. No, no, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We are Abraham. And Paul is going to lay out the story of Abraham. He's going to lay out the story of of Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Esau. And he's going to tell us a lot of hard things, a lot of things that will bump up against hard our conceptions about who we think God should or should not be. But one thing that you're going to see predominantly above everything else in Romans 9 is the absolute glory of God that he is a gracious God, and that while we were hardened of heart and pursuing our own path, God, by his grace, came down and awakened hearts just like he did for Abraham. So where do we want to leave this today? Number one, what appears to be a problem, the church's problem, in Christ is not a problem at all. God's purposes will prevail. Our pain, your pain, over whatever it is in your life is very real. And I believe God would have us press into that so much so that it spurs us towards him, towards prayer, towards seeking after him, towards calling out for him. And then thirdly, that we would remember that it's all about him It's all about Jesus. It's all about what God is doing to prepare the way for him into your life and in mine, and Lord willing, countless others. So we close and and you may say, well, Pastor Paul, all that's great, but what about the Jews? Tell us about them, right? (laughs) Does their rejection of the Messiah mean that the word of God has failed? And Paul's answer unequivocally is by no means. You may say, "But." Why? How can Paul say that? Well, you'll have to come back next week as we get into Romans 9, verse 6 and following. So let's pray.